So let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the book of Philippians, and we pray that, Lord, you'll open our eyes, open our understanding, Lord, to, to just see what, what you gave the Apostle Paul for us tonight. For we know it wasn't just for them. It was for the church down through the ages, right down to tonight at Turning Point. This word was given by the Holy Spirit for us, to us. Now, Lord, we pray, change us, renovate us, renew us. If we need it, revolutionize us. Change us, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Can you breathe a prayer and just say, Lord, tonight, speak to me. And I receive the word of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. God bless you. You can be seated. Amen. All right. Now, tonight, we are going to finish the, the second half of chapter 3. And, you know, these pastors, I was sharing with these pastors uh, this week, and they, they wanted to go on a tour of the building. And, and I took them on a tour of the building. They were amazed. A lot of you don't even know. We have a full print shop. Did you, how many of you did not know that? We can print books. If you didn't, I mean, we don't have to go to a printer much because we have a full-blown print shop. If you didn't know that, raise your hand. Okay, we do. And, and, and I, we, have, we have printers that are just amazing. I mean, there's just a lot there. We can bind our own books, and there's just a lot that we can do. And I was taking them through the church. I showed them the print shop, showed them upstairs, just kind of orientating them and, and giving God the glory for what he had done in, in the building. Because a lot of them are struggling to get a building or to, to uh, just get by. And so it encouraged them to see. But, but, but I, so we were upstairs, and all of a sudden, they were peppering me with questions. And we were in the, the uh, game room, the upper room game room. And they wanted to know how we preach and teach. And I said, well, they said, what are your messages like on Sunday? And I said, I treach. That's what I do. They said, what do you mean by that? And I said, I never preach without teaching. You should always teach you should always give something substantive. Well, I don't care about people jumping up and shouting. I do care how you, how you live once you land. Right? So I said, I preach. There's not a message I bring that I don't put doctrine in it. A lot of times you guys got doctrinated and didn't even know you got doctrinated. But I said, I teach, I preach. And uh, it's a little more intense, and it's not like this for sure. But on Wednesday nights, I'd take them through the books of the Bible. They said, why do you do that? And I said, because we're in a biblically illiterate nation. It's biblically illiterate. As a matter of fact, I'm going to make a strong statement, but I believe it's probably true that I think the illiteracy rate in America, biblically speaking, is, is comparable to the Dark Ages. When they, when they couldn't even get the Bible because the Catholic Church of that day uh, uh, kept the people from the Bible. They had a, they had a Latin Vulgate, uh, a translation of the Bible, chained to the pulpits. And the common people did not have the Word of God. Until people like Wycliffe and Tyndale and others came along and began to translate the Scriptures into the language of the common folks and made it available to people like you and me. But... Uh, before that happened, they didn't have a clue what was in the Bible. You say, now, Jeff, how could it be since there's, you know, a million different translations and, and there's a Bible in everybody's house? Yeah, but they don't read it. And, and they don't understand it. And they don't, they aren't taught it. They're not taught it because pastors, and I love pastors. I am one. And I love ministering to pastors. But, but I think that We've been trained that, you know, you, you get people saved in church or, uh, you know, you, you just kind of keep things shallow because the people can't handle the meat of the word of God. However, let me tell you, I think there's a starvation for the meat of the word of God, right? So I said to them, so I take them through books and I advise them, all of you should teach through the books of the Bible, not necessarily from Genesis to Revelation all the way through, you know, but, but pick a book and teach it and, and let them see the whole counsel of God. Well, I think I sowed some good seed because they, I could really feel it connecting. All right? 
But tonight we're going to talk about Paul's passionate pursuit. That's kind of sums up the last half of chapter three. And last time we closed looking at the apostle Paul's great desire to know Jesus better and better. Remember that last week? And the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. We looked at that last time. Now, as we begin with verse 12, the great apostle continues with a description of his daily goal in life. Now, I want everybody to say with me, his goal should be my goal. And he's going to make that case before we get to the end of this chapter. Paul's goal, he's going to tell you and me to model our lives after what his goals were. So as saying that, let's see what they were. He says in verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. That's something else I ministered to those men that, listen, Christian, uh, we didn't find Jesus. He found us. Now, yes, we repented. Yes, we asked him to come into our hearts, but only because he convicted us of our sin. If, if the Holy Spirit had never come near us, we would all be lost tonight. All right? So um, I, I shared with them, you didn't choose him. He chose you. All Christians, not just preachers, all Christians. You didn't choose him initially. He chose you. Why? There was a purpose that you would go and bring forth fruit. So there is a that for which he laid hold of you. Everybody say that. Now say with me, everybody's got a that. There's a that over your life. There is a that for which he laid hold of you. And, and encased in that word that is God's individual purpose for your life. There is a that. That for which he laid his nail-scarred hand on you and, and saved you. We're not just saved for heaven, though we're going to look at the beauty of heaven tonight. We're not just saved for heaven. We're saved for a purpose or purposes on earth. There's corporate purposes. We all here at Turning Point have a corporate purpose together. Our purpose is to build the saints up in the word of God here into maturity. But I also believe our purpose is to carry the word of God to a dark and reprobate and depraved nation to shine like a bright light. And we're going to take it to them every way we can. And we're working on new ways right now. But here's the deal. There is a that for which he laid hold of me. There is a that for which he laid hold of you. That you would go and bring forth fruit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith. Against those things, there's no law. But not just inner fruit, outer fruit. People being influenced by you for Jesus. You, you're influential. You are an influential human being. You may not know it, but people watch you every day. And as they watch, you're influencing them for bad or for good. And I believe those that are here tonight, especially in 100 degrees on a Wednesday night, when you could be doing other things, it's got to be good. Amen? I want you to notice Paul's memory of the day that Jesus Christ revealed himself to him was a vivid snapshot in his mind. It's where everything stood still. When Jesus knocked him to the ground and a light shone around him and a voice spoke to him, though there was no person standing there, and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. All right, for Saul, who later became Paul, everything stood still. His whole life stood still. It became the premier memory of his life, that one. It was frozen in time. Now, I don't know about you, but I can point to some times God touched me where everything stood still, where, where my life was never the same. We, we would call it a defining moment. A, a defining moment. You know, I, I believe in defining moments. I believe in God-given defining moments. When God does something in your life, God touches you. He invades your space. He, he comes into your, into your life and, and, he, and he touches you in a way on a level that you could never, ever forget. If you live to be a million years old, you could never forget it. It's frozen in time. It, it's when everything 
change direction. For Paul, he was going this way. And after that encounter with God, he's going this way. Totally. It was a total life-altering, direction-altering event. And it's, it's, he says, I can't get away from the moment he laid hold of me with a purpose in mind. And he said, I'm pressing on so that I can, I can fulfill the purpose for which he laid hold of me. This was the heartbeat of his life. It ought to be the heartbeat of your life and mine. That we, that yes, we have to go to work. We have to earn money. We got to pay bills, raise kids. We got places to go, things to do. We all have a life to live. But the primary heartbeat and pursuit and thrust and focus of our life should be, as believers, I want to fulfill the purpose for which he laid hold of me. Amen. For Paul, that was the day he was arrested, apprehended, seized, captured by the love of God. And also for a purpose on earth. Now, God's purpose for him was what I just said, that for which he was apprehended. But he wasn't just apprehended to go to heaven. Here's what we know Paul was apprehended for, just a few of the things. He was apprehended to write much of the New Testament. He was apprehended to reach the Gentile world for Christ. He was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. He was apprehended to testify of Christ before Caesar. And he was apprehended essentially to be the architect of the local church. Because when you read Pauline epistles, it's Paul who taught us about local church life. I mean, he laid it out. He gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Uh, uh, you know, that, that we are to come together with every joint supplying until we all grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ. He had names for the body or, or for, for the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Uh, it was Paul who was anointed to receive the revelation that laid down the architecture for the local church and local church life. It was Paul. So God laid hold of him, used his brilliant mind, used his heart, used his life in, in extraordinary ways. Now, so for Paul, fulfilling that calling became the number one goal of his life. Now, let me ask you, what's the number one goal of your life and mine? You know, when we get up in the morning, what are we thinking about achieving? Are we thinking about achieving uh, that gold watch at 65 and, and receiving our pension and hitting the greens? And having fun in the sun until we one day die? Or, or, or is our goal to uh, achieve a, a certain income level or a certain type house? Is our goal? What is, what is the primary pursuit of your life? Because everybody has a primary pursuit. Uh, there's a lot of things we chase after. But there is a primary motivation that drives all of us. And, and it's good to ask yourself, what is it with you and what is it with me? I like to think it's Jesus and what he's called me to do. I can tell you, as far as I know, that's what it is with me. Because when I realized at 19 that he had laid his hand on me to minister the word of God and preach, it has consumed me all these 20 years. I'm just kidding. I just have to pull that on you because I want to be sure you're with me. No, a lot of years. A lot of years. Okay? But it has been what what I have shot for and aimed for and pressed into and sought to fulfill my whole life. He did that to me. It's not to my glory. He put that in me. Okay? It is God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So if you want to do of his good pleasure, he put that want to do in you. Amen? So he says, brethren, in verse 13, I do not count myself to have apprehended, to have fully completed my purpose. But one thing I do. Everybody say one thing. Now, see there? He had a one thing. Now watch this. One thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to those things that are ahead. Now notice he said, this one thing I do, I'm chasing, I'm chasing after what God laid hold of me for. 
And he said, for me to actually fulfill it, I'm going to have to do two things. And I want you to say them with me. Forget some things and reach for some things. Now, watch this. You can't reach if you don't forget. You will never reach for God's best unless you can forget some things. Now, interestingly, the the word forget here comes from a Greek word that means to neglect, to focus on. We could say, Paul is telling us, there are certain things in my past, the memory of which I have chosen to starve. I've chosen to starve some memories. I've chosen to not access some memories in my past. I've chosen to not fellowship with certain memories and events of my past, lest they hold me back from what is ahead of me. So, so I've chosen to forget. I mean, folks, listen, you can just choose to forget. When a, a, a memory of something bad or whatever jumps into your head, you can say, you know what? I'm starving you out. I'm going to neglect you till you die. I am not going to uh, fellowship you with you. I'm not going to spend time with you. I'm not going to give you time out of my day to consider you, ponder you, meditate on you. I'm going to forget you. What's that old saying? Forget about it. Forget about it. Now, so Paul is saying, and believe me, he has some good things to forget, and he has some bad things to forget. He has chosen to neglect focusing on past blessings, past achievements, past sins, past failures, past mistakes. Now, here's a man who took Christians into a prison and shackled them and tortured them until they renounced Christ. Now, think with me a minute. He, before he was a lover, he was a hater. Here's Paul when he was Saul. He took Christians, moms, dads, children, took them into prison, cuffed them, shackled them, put them in torture situations, and then said, I'll stop when you say I renounce Christ. Oh, help me, Jesus. Some of them, he was there as they were killed at his order. He martyred some. He had, in his memory, the cries of people dying in pain that he did. He had in his memory, echoing around in the memory chambers of his soul, he had the memory of children crying out for parents as they were separated. He had in his memory uh, the, the, the shrieks of people being tortured. And then people saying, just to get away from the pain, I renounce Christ. Now, think with me a minute. He said, forgetting. You don't have anything like that back there. I don't have anything like that back there. I got some bad stuff, but nothing like that. But Paul said, I choose to not let those past memories haunt my mind to the place that I can't reach forward to what he has for me because I'm so convinced his blood has forgiven me that I am free to not remember them and not beat myself up and not punish myself and reach forward to what he's got for me. This is powerful stuff. This man knows what he's talking about. His burning focus is on what lies ahead. And his attitude was, nothing is going to keep me from fulfilling that for which he laid his hand on me. I wrote a book entitled, The Windshield is Bigger Than the Rearview Mirror. The the title is self-explanatory. The windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror. Right? Anything, you know, there's people that literally live driving through life looking in the rearview mirror. And if you do that for five minutes tonight, you will crash. There's a reason the windshield is bigger because that's what you're supposed to look through when you're driving down the highway, not the rear view mirror. But there are people that can't pull their eyes away from what they did, where they went, what they said, the betrayals, the pain, the mistakes, and even the successes. Oh, I was so successful back then. Listen, and then they tell themselves, and sometimes the devil tells them, your best days are behind you. You're never going to see another time like that. And that's a lie. Because God says, remember not the former things. 
neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall. When will it spring forth? Now. But if, it's, if you're, if, if you're going to experience it and see it and spot it and go for it, he says, remember not. So Paul is really echoing Isaiah and other prophets in the Bible, other verses in the Bible, where you've got to forget. Remember not the former things. Don't consider, don't ponder, don't meditate on the things of old. What they did to you, how you were hurt, how you were betrayed. How they did you dirty, um, or how hot you were. I'll never be that hot again. I'm not talking about you're. you're I, I need to. I need to fix this. I'm not talking about that kind of. Although that happens to be true too. Beauty is fleeting. But I'm talking about you, you really had it going on, and now it's, you're not, in the world's eyes, doing quite as well. But never tell yourself it's over for me. It's not over for you. It's not. Moses started his ministry at 80. Caleb said, give me my mountain when he was 80 years old. <sighs> Sometimes I wish I was preaching Sunday when I'm sharing here tonight. So... Satan is master, you do know that, at turning our focus backward to past sins, past failures, past relationships, past successes at the expense of future focus. Uh, but Paul says, my faith is focused on what lies ahead. The best is ahead. The best is ahead of me. Can we say that together? The best is ahead of me. Now, now you need to tell yourself that several times because you have so believed the devil that the best is not ahead of you. Some of you have believed the worst is ahead of me. You've got to rebuke that because God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. So this attitude of looking forward and forgetting what lies behind, um, allowed him to use the second key to achieving God's purpose. The second key was reaching forward. First key, forgetting what's behind. Good, bad, and ugly. Second key, reaching forward. If you want to fulfill that for which he laid his hand on you to, to fulfill and accomplish, you've got to forget and reach. The word reach means to stretch intensely toward. Like a runner stretches toward the finish tape to be the first one across. Stretching. He said, I want God's highest for me so bad my whole life is stretching forward to reach it, grab it, hold it, obtain it, make it mine. Paul says, I'm stretching with all my might towards the goal of finishing that for which Jesus laid hold of me. He goes on to say in verse 14, I press. That's another powerful stretch word. Stretch and press are very similar. I'm stretching and I'm pressing towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Throughout this entire intense passage that we've just read, we see Paul as a man running a race. I, I see him. His head is thrust forward. His expression is fixed in fiercely determined lines. His body is straining forward. Every nerve is heightened. His whole being is reaching toward what he calls the prize. In other words, he wants what he's after. He is not taking the call of God lightly. He is anything but lukewarm. And what is the prize he's after? The high calling of God. It is the that, it is the that for which Jesus laid his nail-pierced hand on him. Now, that's supreme dedication to the max. And I wonder where we stand in comparison. And, I, and I'm pointing right at me, the teacher, as well. Where do we stand in comparison? Do we wake up every day and say, I'm stretching, I'm reaching, I'm pressing, I'm longing, I'm grasping. I'm flexing, I'm, I'm, I'm stretching for what he's called me to do. I want to be everything he's called me to be. I want to be everything that he has called me to be. 
Do we wake up and say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? Where am I to serve? What spiritual gift have you placed in me? How can I make my life today count for God? Lead me, Lord, in your purpose for me this day. I'm going to stretch. I'm going to press. I'm going to reach forward. And if, if memories from the past try to occupy my brain and, and distract me away from that high calling, I say, uh-uh, I've already chosen ahead of time to forget you, to starve you, to neglect you as a thought, as a memory. You don't deserve my time. I'm too busy reaching. Can we say that together? I'm too busy reaching. Amen. Now, Paul next gives an exhortation. He says, therefore, let us, as many as are mature. Now, therefore means, what's it there for? When you see a therefore, you got to look and see what it's there for. He's saying, in light of what I just told you, then let as many of you that think you're mature spiritually have this same attitude. This same mind. If you think you're mature spiritually, you ought to be thinking just like me. That's what he's saying. You ought to be just like me in this. If you're mature spiritually, you're stretching and reaching just like me. And if in anything you think otherwise, if you've got any other attitude other than that one, my God is one day, someday, some way going to reveal that to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. And here Paul is encouraging every Christian to come out of the bleachers and get in the game. If we claim to be spiritually mature, we're going to have the same attitude he did. And if our attitude is otherwise, God's going to show it to us. But he says, look, he said, if you've got the attitude of a mature spiritual person, then you're not a bleacher person. You're, you're not sitting, soaking, and souring. You're not just taking up space in church. You're, you're supporting your church financially and with your gift. You are coming together in unity to help your church achieve the vision he's given all of you collectively. And individually, you're gonna, getting up and you're saying, Lord, today is a day I'm forgetting what's behind me and I'm reaching towards what is in front of me. I want today to be further along in my race than I was when I got up this morning. So come out of the bleachers, come out of the bleachers. He reminds us that you never arrive spiritually, never, but to whatever degree we've grown, he said, whatever degree you've reached, wherever you are in your spiritual life, you should still walk by the very same rule, forgetting, reaching, forgetting, reaching, forgetting, reaching, forgetting, reaching. If I'm going out and I'm pulling people out of wheelchairs and a thousand people a day are being led to Christ by me, I still should get up every day and say, today I forget and today I reach. Forgetting and reaching. No matter what level I've attained, I need to have that same mindset working in my life. Forgetting, reaching, forgetting, reaching, forgetting, reaching. Now next, Paul encourages them to follow legitimate spiritual leadership, starting with himself. Look at verse 17, Philippians chapter 3, 17. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who walk like I do as you have us for a pattern. Now, the Philippian Christians had Paul and other spiritual leaders as living examples. They were not perfect. I'm not perfect. That's no revelation of most of you. I'm flawed. I have... I have shortcomings galore. Uh, I'm not in any way perfect, but I'll tell you what I am. I can tell you this. I'm sincere. I'm sincerely after him. I'm sincerely after him. Okay. They weren't perfect. Paul wasn't perfect, but they had reached some pretty high levels of spirituality. Now, Paul, it sounds almost egotistical. Hey, pattern your life after me. That sounds a little bit egotistical, doesn't it? But as long as they pursued the same goals of forgetting what lay, what lay behind and reaching for the prize that lay ahead, they would do well. It was not an egotistical statement for him to say to them, follow me as I follow Christ. Okay? Humility. Now listen, let me talk to you about humility for a minute. There's a real humility and there's a fake humility, false humility. True humility 
is not a matter of pretending we don't have gifts that we know we have and everybody else knows we have. Somebody comes up to me and says, hey, I really like that. You're a good teacher. I'm not going to go, well, you know, I'm really just, I'm a lousy teacher. I don't know why you would even say I'm a lousy teacher. Well, if I'm a lousy teacher, then I'm in the wrong position in the church because God doesn't call lousy. God gives people to do certain things well. There's nothing wrong with saying, I trust God, I'm doing what I'm doing acceptably well. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Don't say, oh, I'm just no good, I'm a bum, I'm just a, you know old sinner saved by grace, I ought to be in a gutter somewhere instead of here. Don't go there. That's not humility, that's fake. True humility is not false deprecation, running down your attainments, to avoid looking proud, being so afraid of looking proud that you don't own up to doing anything right. To pretend we can't do something we can do is dishonest. If you can sing, you can sing. If you can preach, you can preach. If you're great at business, you're great at business. Amen? If you can run like a deer, you can run like a deer. I hate you for it, but if you can run like a deer, that's great. Now watch. Humility, real humility, is a matter of acknowledging what God has done in our lives and being sure you give him the glory and praise. Amen? Because we couldn't do anything without his help, right? Yes, we have gifts. Every one of us has spiritual gifts. But we couldn't get up in the morning if God didn't give us breath. We could not do anything if he had not given us the gift. That's why Paul said, why are you bragging about what you received You didn't come up with your gift. A gift is something given to you. You didn't come up with it. God gave it to you. So how can you brag about something you received? You know, if I can cook really good, is it wrong for me to call aspiring cooks around me and say, watch me as I cook? Is that wrong? If I can paint a beautiful painting, is it wrong for me to call aspiring painters around me while I'm painting and say, watch how I do it and learn some things? No. Well, Paul was the greatest practitioner of Christianity in his time. So he says, look, watch me and follow me as I follow Christ. Because, because, because I, I've, I've got my hand on this thing and I understand what he wants. So follow me as I follow Christ. Praise God. Now he's going to turn now and he's getting more somber. He's going to turn toward the subject of false brethren. Have you noticed how many of the letters in the New Testament deal with false apostles, false prophets, false teachers? Have have you noticed in our studies here on Wednesday night how often we are taken to this just by going through the Bible? Look what he says in verse 18. For many walk. How many? Many. Many walk. Of whom I have told you often, and now I tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Whoa. Now, Paul had learned after planting a few churches that the enemy moved very quickly with a counterattack once that church was planted. And I can tell you, it's true. You plant a church, you do any work for God. And I've done a lot of works for God in my years. Let me tell you, no sooner has the anointing fallen and no sooner has God moved in a significant way than right behind that comes a counterattack from the devil. And I've learned, I've learned to watch for him, look for him, anticipate him and preemptively be ready for him as much as I can because he's going to counter attack. The devil doesn't sit there and watch something great built for God without attacking. So he'd learned this and typically what would happen with Paul is he'd go to these different towns and cities and win a bunch of people to Jesus and right behind him would come Jewish men grabbing the new converts and telling them, that guy that told you that you were saved, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Let let us tell you what you really need to do. You got to mix Old Testament law with New Testament faith in order to really be saved. He didn't tell you the truth. You can't be saved by faith alone. That's not real. And And they would ruin the new converts. So Paul realized wherever he went, he would have to warn his new converts about false brethren. And I understand that. So in his letter to the Philippians, he sounds the warning. And in the next verse, he tells us what the fate is of these that are causing the newborn Christians to stumble. 
Man, you got to be, never, never, never cause a newborn Christian to stumble. Jesus said, better for you that a millstone was tied around your neck and you were cast into the depths of the sea than you make one of these little ones, young ones, to stumble. He says, let me tell you their end. Their end is destruction. These false teachers doing this, their end is destruction. Now, the word destruction is used by Jesus in Matthew 7, 13 in the Sermon on the Mount when he's describing hell. He said, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to what? Destruction. And many choose that road. And Paul literally, he's weeping. I want you to notice the Christ-likeness of this man. He's not reaching for, uh, weeping for friends or acquaintances, but he's, he's weeping for enemies. He's weeping for his enemies. You know why? Because he knows their fate worse than death. Hell awaits them with all of its horrors. Of all the things that they could have chosen to be the enemies of, the cross of Christ is the worst of the worst of the worst. If you're going to be the enemy of anything, never pick out the cross of Christ and be the enemy of the cross. Because that's where we were redeemed. Paul says, I'm weeping for them. Because their life is going to be so brief. You're here for a little time like a vapor, and then you vanish away. And the minute your heart stops and you breathe your last breath, you are in eternity. And these false teachers who had made so many stumble were going to immediately go into a very, very dark eternity, Christless eternity, godless eternity, where never again would they ever have any chance to experience the presence or goodness or love of God. Hell is real, and judgment is coming. Can I just tell you tonight, judgment is coming. I will never get up here and tell you, oh, I'm not going to talk about all that stuff. I just want to tell you how God can bless you today and all that. No, let me tell you, judgment is coming. It's coming on America. It's coming on the other nations of the world. It's coming on every individual that rejected Christ. It's coming on every nation that has rejected God. The nation shall be turned into hell, it says in the Psalms, that have forsaken and forgotten God. So then he goes into describing their nature. He says that's their fate, but let me tell you their nature. Let me tell you what they're like. Let me tell you what they're made of. Chapter, or verse 19, chapter 3, second half of the verse. Whose God, small g, is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on what kind of things? Earthly things. Now, the phrase, the, the, the God being their belly, or their, their belly, the God is their belly, is a reference to living a sensual, materialistic, self-indulgent, self-serving life. They were all about self-indulgence, while on the outside, they were pretending to be religious teachers. They were going to these new converts, telling them, we know the word better than this Paul guy. So you need to listen to us, because we're going to set you straight. And they would turn these new converts, if they could, away from Christ. But now, so, so they're, they're, they're portraying themselves as these great, knowledgeable, wise, religious teachers. But they were anything but. In their personal life, behind closed doors, as the old song said, nobody knows what goes on behind closed doors. Let me tell you, with these false teachers, it would shock you what goes on behind closed doors. Because they're feeding their flesh, they're living sensual lives. God is nowhere in their mind. They're not serving God, living for God. And these religious teachers, these, these uh, Judaizers, is what Paul called them, would travel far and wide to undo what they called the false teaching of Paul. They fancied themselves deliverers of the deceived. And if along the way, and it happened all the time, they were hospitably received by the people who were thanking them for, hey, thanks for setting us straight. They would receive what these people gave them and would extract from them their food and their money as they traveled and they considered themselves laborers worthy of their hire. And they gladly took the food and the lodging and the money offered them. In other words, they were using religion as a pretext to get money. But it was they who were the false teachers, turning the simple away from the salvation they had received by faith in Jesus alone. And these false teachers made their living off of fleecing the flock. Now, can I just get real with you today? It's no different now. 
Do you think it's any different now? Oh, no, it's no different now. No different now. There, there are, now, let me, up front, let me tell you, there's many truly honest, good, noble ministers whose hearts are to serve Jesus Christ, and they only want the rewards that are going to be given to them at the judgment seat of Christ. We had a bunch of them here this week. I, know, I, I can't think of a one of them that I don't know in my heart. They are honest, good men. So I don't want to paint all of ministry this way. As a matter of fact, what I'm going to say has to do with a minority. I don't believe with the majority. But there is a minority that are very influential. And I want you to listen how Paul describes them. They are false teachers twisting the word of God in order to extract money from the simple. They, they twist the teaching of the scriptures. They skew it. They misrepresent it in order to get your money and mine. Now, look what Paul called them. Quote, people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness, watch this, everybody, follow every word I'm reading, who think and teach that godliness is a means to financial gain. Did you read that with me? Is that in your Bible? Okay, so... Listen carefully now. There are people that teach, if you're godly, it equates into money. If you're godly, we'll know it by your money. If you're godly, we'll know it by your prosperity or not. Am I wrong or am I right? Do you hear that? I hear this. Now, another translation, the message, not translation, but paraphrase, says this. They think religion is a way to make a fast buck. That's a good way to put it. And they're on um, so-called Christian TV. Their shows are called Christian, but some of them are not Christian at all. You know why? Because what they're teaching is not Christian. I mean, can I say that and, and you not accuse me of being judgmental? Excuse me while I judge. Because I'm just reading the Bible. This isn't Jeffisms. I'm reading the Bible. Now watch this. Paul said to the Corinthians, we are not like many hucksters who preach for personal profit. Did he say that? 2 Corinthians 2.17. Another version says, we are not like others that preach God's word to make money. Now their motive is to make money. Okay, let's go back in history a little bit. Way back the Dark Ages. Dark Ages began around 400 A.D. 400 A.D., Rome collapsed, Western Rome, after all those centuries. It finally just collapsed. It went away. It was rotted from the inside, all right? And the Roman Catholic Church came into a huge level of power. The Roman Catholic Church stepped into this vacuum uh, that was left when Rome lost its power, okay? Now, I'm not slamming Catholics now. I'm just telling you what happened in the Roman Catholic Church in the Dark Ages. Okay, they said, we want to build some great cathedrals. How are we going to be able to do it? And they said, here's how we'll do it. We'll come up with a scam. The scam is we're going to come up with this thing called purgatory. Purgatory is where souls that die go and are tormented and have to pay off their sins. And when they pay off their sins in purgatory, then they are allowed to go into heaven. Okay. I mean, that's the teaching of purgatory in a nutshell. And so they said, we will tell people around Europe, this is where this rose up. We'll tell people that if they give money to our church, that as soon as the money drops into the little metal cup that we take out, we have buckets, they had little metal cups. As soon as the, the coins clink into the bottom, your loved ones are going to be delivered from purgatory. They won't have to pay off their sins in purgatory. They're just going to come out because you gave money. Right? So one of the pros was called Johann Tetzel. And he was good. He was a good liar, a good manipulator. 
And he would go to these little German hamlets and little towns where these poor people were so ignorant and they didn't know anything. And he would give his spiel. As soon as your coins clink into the bottom of this cup, your loved ones are coming out of purgatory. And they would just throw the, the few coins they had in life into those cups, believing that their loved ones right then came out of purgatory. What was the message? Money will buy you a blessing. Can I tell you something? The greatest spiritual blessings I have ever experienced happened to me when I didn't have a dime in my pocket. It's true. Okay? Now, that's what made Martin Luther, the reformer, finally get so angry that he tacked his 95 theses onto the church door in Wittenberg and started the Great Reformation. All right? And everything changed. And that was in the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages. But here's the deal. Don't we hear sometimes the same kind of thing now? If you give to this ministry, you're going to, you're going to, your loved one's going to be saved. Your runaway child's going to come home. You're going to get healed in your body. The message is God will act when you give money. Now, are, are you with me? That's, is that not the message? God will act when you give money. Well, you know what? I don't see that in the Bible. I see that if we pray in faith, God answers. Amen. Period. No, no money anywhere. Jesus didn't say give money and all. Can you imagine giving Jesus a 10 to heal your blind eyes? Jesus, I'll give you a $100 bill to heal my blind Would he have taken it? I'm just trying to show you a little bit of history here and a little, the message is, listen, I know that if I pray in faith, God's going to answer me whether I give money or not. Because how do you please God? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Okay. Paul refers to the Macedonian churches that have been gloriously saved. Yet they were living in poverty. This is 2 Corinthians 8. They were living in poverty. And even in their poverty, they gave above what they were able to the needs of others. They were gloriously saved, but they were in poverty. Now listen to James. James wrote, listen to me, dear brothers. God has chosen what kind of people? It's up there. To be what? Rich in faith. Hold on. How can they be rich in faith? And that not equate into also being rich financially if big faith equates into big money. Because here's people poor, but they're rich in faith. I'm just reading it to you. I'm asking you. Maybe you can teach me. I'm just putting it out there. And the kingdom of heaven is theirs. For that's the gift that God has promised to all those who love him. Did you know that in the book of Revelation, the church in Smyrna, he, Jesus addresses seven churches. The church in Smyrna was poor, but is the only church out of seven Jesus does not correct. They're, they're poor. Listen to what he says. I know how much you suffer for the Lord, and I know all about your poverty, but you have heavenly riches. Now, wait a minute. It's the only church he doesn't correct. And they're the ones that are poor. But he says, you are rich in faith, rich in spiritual riches. Are y'all following me? On the flip side, the wealthiest church, the church of Laodicea, is the one that receives the greatest chastisement from the Lord. He says, you say I'm rich with everything I want. I don't need a thing. But you don't realize in the midst of all your material wealth that spiritually you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So you got one that was poor, but they're rich in spiritual things. You got another one that's materially rich, but they're poor in spiritual things. So does rich faith equate into rich money? Now, will God bless you materially? Yes, he will. I'm not saying, hey, you need to walk around and be poor. What I am saying is it's a false message to say if you have great faith, you will also have great things, great wealth, because that's just not so. You can be very, very, very rich in faith, but, but not have a lot materially. Jesus always looked to one's spiritual condition as the best indicator of their faith. Never did he measure faith by money or possessions. 
I got to stop there. I'm sorry, I have to. <laughs> Let's stand. Can, I, I want to let them, I need to let you go home. But, but, but folks, please understand, I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm not trying to, and again, I'm not slamming. If God blesses you with $10 million this week, we will take your tithe. <laughs> oh, yes, 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 we will. I'm just wanting you to understand. I'm wanting you to know. I, listen, I'm going to answer to God for how I taught you. I'm not going to tell you you've got to buy a blessing. No. 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 You can pray and God will bless you. I'm not telling you it's wrong to have money. I'm not telling you it's wrong to be blessed materially. As long as it doesn't have you, you have it. But I'm just wanting you to see here what the Bible really says about faith. Because this is what Paul was talking about. There are, there are messenger, messengers out there, teachers and preachers, that are telling you that, that um, if you'll give this or that to them, then God will bless your life. But if you don't, God won't bless you. You're going to miss a blessing. And they get wealthy off of those messages. All right, Lord, we just thank you for your blessing tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the word of God. We come to you, Lord, humbly. And Lord, I just lay this message out before you. I lay Philippians out before you. Lord, we've looked at heavy truth. Lord, I just pray you'll help us to know that if we don't have a penny in our pocket and we pray in faith, God will give us everything Jesus purchased for us. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us with a high level of material blessing in the United States of America. But Lord, if we ever reach a time we don't have a dime to our name, we know that you're there with us, blessing us, keeping us, providing for us, fellowshipping with us, and that you will never leave us and never forsake us if we never have another dime to give to you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Let's sing one stanza and then we'll...